Please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. I hope that you're excited this morning about feasting on God's Word and that you are also excited about feasting in fellowship later. Just encourage you to come and join us in the banquet halls following the service, uh, especially if you're visiting us with, this, with us this morning and you just found out about our, our Feast of Thanks after the service this morning. We'd encourage you to go ahead and, and come on by. We'd, we'd love to have the opportunity to fellowship with you. This is uh, one of our, our favorite Sundays of the year. It's uh, one of the hardest Sundays of the year to preach because those smells just come waf- uh, wafting, in, wafting, wafting, they come in the doors and um, they begin to smell very, we're talking about the pleasures of this, this world this morning, so it's a great illustration as it comes in. Do I love God's word or the, the food of this world more? So that's why we've done it today. Um, but we're, we're looking at Luke chapter 8 verses, uh, really 1 through 21 is one long section about hearing God's word, and we're looking at the parable of the sower over uh, these four weeks. We're in the third of four weeks looking at the parable of the sower, and so this morning we're going to read verses 4 through 15 together, and so if you'd stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together this morning. Verse 4 of Luke 8, And when a great crowd was gathered, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it, and some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when the disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in a time of testing fall away. And as for those that, and as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. You may be seated. God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, this week as we think about Thanksgiving, We are thankful, first and foremost, for your son, Jesus. Father, we pray this morning that we would cling fast to him, that all the other things in this world would be counted as, as rubbish, as nothing, compared with knowing him. And those physical things that we do have in our lives, we would be thankful for them, but thankful in the sense of, grateful to you that you've provided us with instruments to use for your glory. Help us to have the right orientation towards the things of this world 
We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. In 1857, a steamship, the SS Central America, left a port in Panama and began sailing for New York. Aboard the SS Central America were 578 people and 10 tons of gold. On September the 9th of 1857, the ship was overtaken by a hurricane, and as the the ship was battered by the storms of the next few days, it, it became obvious that the ship was not going to survive the storm. And in those moments that it became obvious that the ship was not going to survive this hurricane, some people had to make some quick decisions. One survivor of the wreckage said this, He said, the love of gold was forgotten in the anxiety and terror of the moment. Many a man unbuckled his gold-stuffed belt and flung his hard-earned treasure upon the deck. Another writer says that not all did this. Some, Some passengers jumped overboard as the ship sank, fatally weighed down with heavy gold. Brothers and sisters, A love for the things of this world, a love for the things of this world is like jumping over the side of a ship lashed to an anchor. Loving the things of this world is like heaping gold into your pockets and putting a big heavy gold money belt around your waist and and jumping into the sea. You Obtain that which you desire, but at the cost of your life. I don't know how to say it any more plainly than this. You cannot love God and simultaneously love the things of this world. You can't do it. You cannot love God and at the same time love the things of the world. These two loves cannot coexist. One will drive out the other. But my fear this morning, my fear is that many of us are convinced that they can somehow pull it off, that they can love all the things of this world and at the same time have a love for Jesus. It cannot be done. Love of the world will end in destruction. Love of the world manifests itself in a variety of ways. Sometimes it manifests itself in just loving the the pleasures that this world offers. Sometimes the love of the world manifests itself in in actually loving the physical possessions that a person can have, the things they can hold in their hands or or the things that they can acquire or or numbers on on a bank account, a bank statement. Sometimes love of the world manifests itself in anxiety and worry and caring about the things of the world that they don't have or the things of the world that they do have and want to protect. Love of the world manifests itself in a variety of ways, but it cannot coexist with a love for God, and a love of this world will lead to the destruction of your soul. And the evangelical church, and in North, in North America especially, is prone to believing that they can somehow pull off both loves. It can't be done. 
want to read to you, before we begin looking at Luke, at, uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 14, I want to read to you what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul is, is talking about these things in his life that he had, that he was depending on to, to gain righteousness. And then he says this, and he says this in verse 8. He says, I count everything as loss. All these things that he'd been relying upon, all these things that he had taken great pride in, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as garbage, as junk. You see what he's saying? He's saying, I've obtained Jesus Christ. And as I've obtained Jesus Christ, I've forsaken everything else and it's not like he says this he's not it's not like he says i had i have all these really valuable things that i like a lot but jesus is kind of a better deal so i kind of traded in some really valuable stuff for for something even more valuable he says no compared to jesus christ all these things that i thought were valuable are actually rubbish garbage junk then he says this why is jesus christ so valuable why is Jesus Christ so valuable? He says this in verse 9. I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says this, as I come to Jesus Christ, I recognize that I have no ability to stand before God on my own. And because of Jesus Christ, I have the opportunity for God to look upon me and not see me the sinner, but to take away my sin and put Christ's righteousness in me. And now God can look at me and not see my sin, but see Christ's righteousness. There is nothing, nothing, nothing more valuable than that. The person of Jesus Christ is the most valuable possession that a person can obtain. And a person that understands the gospel understands that. My hope and my prayer this morning, the goal of, of looking at this text with you this morning, is that you would fling your treasures on the deck of that boat and cling to the person of Jesus Christ. And maybe this morning you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ Maybe you've never turned from your sin and turned to, to faith in Jesus. And so my prayer for you today is that as we talk about this parable of the sower and look at this thorny soil, you'd say, you know what, I've, I've been following this path. I no longer want to follow that path. I want to turn to Jesus. I recognize that he's a great treasure, and I want to cling to him. I'm going to place my faith and my trust in him alone. And for those of you who are believers who've already made that calculation and placed your trust and faith in Jesus Christ alone, my hope for you is that you would be committed, recommit this morning to persevering after Jesus in faith, flinging your treasures once again to the deck, continuing to do that, and pursuing the pearl of great price, Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at the text here, Luke chapter 8, verse 14. What we're going to do first of all is we're going to, to look at some characteristics of this thorny heart, and then we're going to draw some applications in your bulletin in those notes. There's kind of five questions of application that we're going to ask after we look at the characteristics of this heart. Remember where we are in the story. 
Jesus has told this parable. He said there's this farmer that goes out, he grabs some seed, and he scatters the seed, and these seeds fall on four different types of soil. Uh, one type of soil is the soil you find on a pathway. It's, it's hardened, it's been trampled upon, and the seed that falls on, on this soil doesn't take root, and it's, it's eaten up. The second soil that we looked at last week is the soil that falls in the, that, that covers the rocky places. Seed that falls on this soil fails to grow deep roots because it encounters these, these rocky, this, this rock and is unable to, to grow these deep, rich roots from which you can receive moisture. We saw that this, the first type of soil represented a heart that was hard to the things of God and didn't accept the gospel message. The second soil that we looked at last week represented a heart that made a, a temporary ascent to the truths of Christ and, and placed one, uh, kind of a temporary faith in at least the, the things about God, but, truly, uh, but failed to truly place their faith in the person of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're looking at this thorny soil, this heart represented by the thorny soil. Let's look at four characteristics of this heart. The first thing we see in verse 14 is this. Jesus says, as for those who, for, the, for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. And so the first characteristic of this heart is it's a heart that hears the gospel message. It understands this truth that a person needs to turn from their sin and turn to faith in God through the person of Jesus Christ, and that's, that's what they hear. They hear that message of God's kingdom and how one enters God's kingdom through faith in Jesus. The second characteristic of this heart, however, Jesus tells us, is they hear, but they go on their way. In other words, this person hears this message about Jesus Christ, and it's very passive in their response to it. Instead of clinging to that message, instead of saying, yeah, yeah that is a, an amazing message, instead of seeing Jesus as uh, someone of value, of all-encompassing value and worth and a treasure, they continue to, to kind of go on their way. The idea is they kind of put Jesus with all the other things in their life. That message sounds good, they say, and so, yeah, I'm going I'm to accept that message, and I'm going to love uh, football, and I'm going to kind of love my job, and I'm going to love promotions, and I'm going to love Jesus. Jesus is just something simply added to the shelf of things that this person loves. Sometimes when you do evangelism with a person who's uh, from a polytheistic culture, a culture that worships many gods, you explain the person of Jesus to them. You say, hey, this is Jesus. This is who he is. This is what he did, and he's God. And a person from this polytheistic culture might say, yeah, sounds great. And, ex and you think they've accepted Jesus. When in reality, what have they done? They've taken the Jesus God, and they've kind of put him on the shelf with all the other gods that they already worship. A person who puts Jesus on the shelf among a bunch of other gods is not a person who's truly understood the gospel, right? A person who truly understands the gospel understands that there's one God, that, he's, that Jesus Christ is God, and that God himself took the penalty for our sins and obtains salvation through placing their faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's a person who truly understands the gospel. Similarly, a person who truly understands the gospel doesn't simply take Jesus and put him uh, in their heart among all the different loves that they have in life. A person who understands the gospel in its fullness understands that Jesus is unique. He is of infinite worth. A person that understands the gospel accepts Jesus as Savior, recognizing that worth that he has. So this heart is a person 
who hears the gospel message and, and simply places Jesus, secondly, among all the other things in their life, and, and then just goes on their way. There's a, a passive response to this gospel message, not an active acceptance of it. Then Jesus says, thirdly, this heart becomes choked out, or the gospel in this heart becomes choked out by the other things there. What else do we see in this heart? Look at the text. Jesus says, also in this heart, is in, that's choking out the gospel message, are the cares and riches and pleasures of life. Three things there. The cares of life refer to those things that a, a person worries about and is anxious about. A person who's obsessed with, with material things, either the things that they don't have or the things that they have that they want to protect, is a person who's uh, obsessed with the, the cares of life. As they have these cares of life, it chokes out the gospel because instead of seeing Jesus Christ as all-sufficient, they desire these other physical things in life to bring them peace and satisfaction. The other thing that Jesus says that chokes out the gospel message in this heart are not just the cares of life, but the riches of life, the physical things themselves, the car, the, the boat, the house, the clothing, the numbers on one's pay stub, these things that a person becomes obsessed about and begins to focus on instead of focusing on the person of Jesus. It chokes out the gospel message. And the third thing, not only is it the cares of life, not only is it the riches of life, the physical things, but it's the pleasures of life that those physical things sometimes bring. This person, as he or she obsesses about the delights, the, 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 the delights that one can, can feel and sense and taste, those pleasures of life becomes unconcerned about the things of God and instead seeks the pleasures in life. We're here in Luke 8. If you turn over just a few chapters to Luke chapter 12, you see an example of this type of person. It's the parable of the, the rich fool. And you remember the story, perhaps. Jesus is telling this story about this rich fool, and he says uh, to, to be careful, guard your heart against covetousness, for one's life does not consist, this is verse 15 of Luke 12, one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. Verse 16, he tells them this parable. The land of a, a rich man produced plentifully. And this rich man thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for, your, for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. What do we see there? There's three things that, remember, there's three things that choke out the gospel message in our heart that's concerned with the material things. There's the cares of this life, there's the riches of this life, and there's the pleasures of this life. This guy has all three. He's concerned about the future, and so he pursues physical things. He obtains those physical things, and then he takes security in those things and enjoys the pleasures of life. Eat, drink, be merry, and what does God respond? Verse 20 Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? These physical pleasures in life, the physical things of this world, can be so, so very deceptive. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul tells Timothy, he says, 
we brought nothing into the world, First uh, Timothy 6, verse 7, we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Do you, do you believe that? Do you believe that it's true that a person who has a desire to be rich, a love to be rich, is falling into a snare that will lead to their ruin and destruction? That's not the gospel of North America. That's not the gospel of the United States of America. But it's what God says. If you have a love for this world and this driving desire to be wealthy and to obtain the things of this world, you're falling into a snare. Jesus says in Matthew, you can't serve two masters. You're going to love the one and hate the other. You cannot pursue with your heart the wealth of this world and simultaneously pursue God. It can't be done. The things of God will crowd out a love for the things of this world or a love for the things of this world will crowd out your desire for God. You can't pursue both with your heart. And many of us have deceived ourselves into believing that we can. This soil that Jesus is talking about takes Jesus, takes the word of God, and plops him down in the soil, that soil of their heart. But the other things of the world are still there. The love of money, riches, pleasures, cares of this life and believes maybe I can keep all of them in the soil together and let them all grow together, and it just simply cannot be done. This heart hears the word of God. It's passive as it responds to the gospel. It simply accepts Jesus along with all the other things in their life, and then the result is that it's choked out by the other things that it's allowed to continue to remain in its heart. And then the fourth characteristic of this heart we see, Jesus says, is that it doesn't bear fruit. Verse 14, it says, their fruit does not mature. Once again, as we saw the soil last week, I believe this is not describing a true believer. The true believer hears the gospel message. We're going to see this next week. The true believer hears the gospel message, recognizes the value of Jesus Christ, and actively receives Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, last week, as I suggested that this second soil that we looked at did not refer to a believer, I knew that I was going to get some emails, right? <laughs> and y you know what the major theme of the email that I got, the emails that I got was, as it dealt with the sermon? Daniel, enjoy the message last week. I may not be a believer. Please help me, right? <laughs> Say, look, 
I, I heard what you said last week about this heart that falls away in times of trial, and, and I'm concerned about the, 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 the condition of my heart. I do sometimes fall away, and, and what does that mean about me? And uh, some people, I'm sure, are going to, to look at this text and say, man, I do love the things of this world sometimes. You're saying that, that this isn't a believer. This really describes me. What does that say about me? Let, let me encourage you with this. Well, first of all, let me discourage you. It's good to ask the question. It's important to ask the question, what, who is my faith in? What is the condition of my heart? And so I'd encourage you to ask that question. But secondly, let me offer you this encouragement. The heart that's concerned about their standing before God, the heart that's concerned and desires to grow deeper in God is the heart of a believer. I was talking to one very dear saint this last week, a, a woman in her 90s who had just read a book about the, the gospel and was, was concerned about the lack of fruit in her life. And as she talked to me, she said, you know, I, I just recognize there are so many more other things that I could have done, and I see sin in my life still, and it, it grieves me. And as we, I, I didn't say, well, hey, don't worry about it. You're definitely a Christian. I don't, I don't say things like that. I said, well, you tell me, why do you believe that you're a believer? And she said this. She said, because I've recognized that I'm a sinner. I've placed my faith in Jesus. And she said, God took my sin and he took Christ's righteousness and gave it to me. And now when God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin, but Christ's righteousness. That's the testimony of a believer, isn't it? <laughs> and now, you see what's happening in her life? As a believer, she desires to grow even deeper. She desires to produce even more fruit. The believer is going to hear the, these parables and say, look, I don't want the parable that deals with this rocky soil to refer to my life. I, I don't want the thorns to be in my life. I, I want to persevere in these things. That's going to be the response of the believer. So maybe this morning you're not a believer, you haven't recognized the value of Jesus, and my encouragement would be for you to recognize the value of Jesus Christ and place your faith and trust completely in him. Uh, but maybe you're a believer this morning, you say, boy, I recognize that these thorns represent a danger to me as well, and I desire to, to persevere in my faith. I desire to be a, a true believer whose faith produces fruit, and I commend you for that this morning. And so what I want to do with us in the remainder of our time is ask five questions. Five questions that serve as kind of a heart test that help us evaluate if we're persevering in removing these thorns from our life. The true believer, the person who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ, is going to say, I desire to grow in this area. I desire to produce greater fruit, and I'm going to persevere until the end. First question is this. First question is this. Do you value Christ above all else? Do you value Christ above all else? The person who's understood the gospel has recognized the surpassing, all-encompassing value of Jesus Christ and has turned from their sins, has turned from their dead works, and turned to placing their faith in Jesus. John Piper wrote a great book entitled God is the Gospel. And listen to what he says. He says, when I say that God is the gospel, I mean that the highest, best, final, decisive good of the gospel without which no gifts would be good is the glory of God in the face of Christ revealed for our everlasting enjoyment. You see what he's saying there? He's saying 
the, the great things about the gospel, like our sins being forgiven, like going to heaven, like getting to see our, our family in heaven, all those things are good, but all of them pale in comparison to the ultimate good, the good of being able to obtain Jesus Christ himself in a relationship with God. The person who understands the gospel understands that Christ is valuable, valuable above all else. Let me give you a couple of scriptures to meditate on as you think about that. One is Psalm 16. In Psalm chapter 16, the psalmist says this. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion. He's using language there that refers to the, the language they used whenever they were dividing up the land. And a family would receive this, this uh, land. God gave the, the different tribes these different portions of land, and they cast lots to see who would get which parts of the land. And listen to what the psalmist says. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Can you say that this morning? <laughs> Can you say, my inheritance, ultimately, my value, my treasure, my inheritance, my portion, my cup, is the Lord. Psalm 27, in Psalm 27, verse 4, the psalmist says this, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The psalmist also says in Psalm 70, he says, May all who seek the Lord rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. This morning, the first question a believer where anyone needs to ask themselves, do I value Christ above all else? This is the starting point of a, of a transformed heart. A person who's a believer should answer that in the affirmative. The second question is this, as you check the condition of your heart, have you consciously, have you consciously rejected the values of this world? Have you consciously rejected the values of this world, the value system of this world? The person who's a believer says, okay, uh, Christ is valuable above all else, and, and the things that this world holds valuable, I, I'm rejecting that. I, I'm not playing that game anymore. The promotions, the applause of men, the esteem of men, the, the treasures of this world, I, I have a different value system now. Honestly, this, is, this question is, I believe, very crucial, and it's where a lot of believers get tripped up. Thinking about uh, even Christian financial counselors or, or people you'll, you'll hear on the radio or, or just talking with other believers. What sometimes happens is this. A believer recognizes that they've had the wrong attitude towards finances. They may have recognized, you know, I, I'm, I'm spending money foolishly. I have all this credit card debt. I'm, I'm drowning in car debt, and I've just been a, a spendthrift, I, I, or I've, I've spent way too much money. I've loved these, these things that I was able to obtain with my MasterCard, and now I recognize that's wrong, and I'm not going to do that anymore. 
And then what they start doing is, is saving like maniacs. I'm going to pay off all this debt. I'm going to pay off all the, the credit card debt. Then I'm going to pay off all my car debt. And then I'm going to pay off all my house debt. And then I'm going to save up a bunch of money for, for college and retirement and for, for this and this. And what's happened? The heart hasn't changed. <laughs> they still want the things of this world. They recognize that this wasn't the most uh, wise, the wisest way to obtain the things of the world. So now they're obtaining the things of the world a different way. But they still love the things of the world. I've heard financial counselors, uh, both in in person on the radio, say this a lot of times, want to build up wealth. The desire for riches is a snare. And the heart that seeks after finances through saving and the heart that seeks after physical things through spending are are, uh, both are hearts that are in danger of falling into the snare of the world. Have you consciously rejected the value system of the world? The value system of the world says things, things, things. The value system of the believer says Christ, Christ, Christ. He is my portion. He is my inheritance. He is all and above all. Now, am I saying that it's wrong to save? No. Am I saying that it's wrong to spend? No. I'm saying the value system of the world is a value system that leads to ruin and destruction and misery and death to our souls. Third question, third question, does your heart find its security in God? Does does your heart find its security in God? And remember the the parable that we looked at in Luke chapter 12, the, the rich fool begins to Look at this, this, what he's produced and say, Man, this, is, this is amazing. I, I don't even have enough places to store the, these crops, and so I'm going to, to build up bigger places to store my crops. And the heart becomes obsessed with seeking security in this world and finding pleasures and the things of this world. And so this heart is a foolish heart. The Lord Jesus Christ says, and God himself in verse 20 of Luke 12 calls this man a fool he says, this night, your soul is required of you, and the, listen to this, the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The fool is the one who seeks security in the things of this world. The wise person finds his or her security in God. Fourth, fourth question to check your heart with, have you recognized that all that you own is God's? Have you recognized that all that you own is God's? Psalm 90, I'm sorry, um, Psalm 50, Psalm 50, verse 9. Listen to what the God says through the psalmist in Psalm 50. God says, look, I'm not going to accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. And, and listen to this great theological truth that God says in verse 10 of Psalm 50. Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, 
for the world and all its fullness is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Mark, is, Mark DeJarnett, as he prayed for our, our offering this morning, prayed a prayer that's exactly right. He said, God, we recognize that 100% of all that we have is yours. Very often, though, sometimes we express it this way. We say, God, I thank you for all that you've given me, and now I'm going to give back a portion to you. That's not a theologically accurate way to look at giving. It's not a theologically accurate way to look at possessions. In our home, uh, the kids know one of the easiest ways to set dad off is to start arguing about what's mine, right? As soon as I hear the word mine, uh, just something snaps inside of me. Uh, first of all, because uh, I, I know it's not theirs, I, I'm pretty sure I paid for that. And secondly, I, I recognize this is a very dangerous heart attitude. So if, a, if, if two of our kids are arguing, hey, that's mine, no, it's mine, it's my turn, it's my this, my that. Hey, you know what? We ask this question of our kids, whose is it? It's God's. And who does he share it with? Me? Nope. You? Right? <laughs> God shares it with mom and dad, allows them to use it, and mom and dad are allowing you to use it. Actually, put that in the past tense. We're allowing you to use it. Now it's mine. Why? Because it's so crucial for our children it's so crucial for ourselves to understand this is, it, th there's a myth of ownership. It's a lie. It's a deception. The book of Haggai, Haggai chapter 1, G, uh, the prophet Haggai is talking to the people and the people of Israel and he says, look, you've, you're, you're trying to build your own homes before you build God's temple and, and you're, you're uh, putting money in a, in a pocket in a, in, a, in a pouch with a hole in it, right? These things that you're trying to obtain for yourself, it, it's not working out. Why? Because they're pursuing things that, that, that can't satisfy. And God in his mercy doesn't allow us to find satisfaction in the physical things of the world ultimately. It's an important theological realization to come to. I own nothing. It's not that I own 90% of what God gives me and give him 10% or 15% or 20% or 25%. God owns it all. Which brings us to the fifth question. The fifth question to ask ourselves as we look at our, our hearts is this. Are you being faithful in how you manage God's resources? There is no denying that Every person in this room is extremely wealthy by historic standards, by current global standards. Every person in this room is extremely wealthy. In, in a few moments, uh, you're going to have access to, to more food than some people have access to in a week. You're all wealthy. We're all wealthy. I said earlier, the heart that desires and pursues wealth is not a, a heart that can love God, and I, and I stand by that, but the fact of the matter is, we have a lot of wealth. Whether we pers have pursued it in our hearts or not, we are all very wealthy. The question is, what are we to do with all this wealth? 
How do we make sure that these riches and pleasures and, and the cares of the world don't choke out the effectiveness of the gospel in our lives? How do we make sure that we're faithful in how we manage God's resources? How do I know that I have a lot of stuff, and how do I know that I'm using it as God would have me use it? Let me give you a, a couple more questions and a couple of ways that, that God says that we're to spend our money. One thing that we're to do is to, to pay our taxes. That's something Scripture very clearly says, and this isn't a very popular thing to say in this room, I'm sure, all you tea partiers. Uh, but Romans, Romans 13, Roman, and uh, I, I'm, I'm teasing, of course, uh, Romans 13, verse 7 says, a pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And of course, it's not saying, hey, try to encourage an unfair tax policy. Or, and of course, because uh, those of us who are in this room of voting age and citizenship can uh, affect the types of taxes that are levied. I'm not saying it's not a right to, to try to fight for a fair tax system. What I'm saying is this, when you owe taxes, pay them. What does God want you to do with your money? One thing that Scripture clearly says is God wants you to, to pay your taxes. Another thing that's clear in Scripture that God wants you to do with your money is to provide for your family. God wants you to provide for your family. First uh, Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, um, Paul says this. He's talking about widows. He says, uh, If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Another thing that God wants you to be spending your money on is, is providing for your family. And first and foremost, the people that live under your roof, God wants you to be providing for, but also other members of your family who are, who are struggling, who need financial provision, uh, God wants you to be providing for them. You say, well, wait a minute, I have this, this child who's living in rebellion to God and, and making some terrible uh, decisions with their life, and, and I can't support them. You're right, you can't, but as that child turns and desires to, to follow after the Lord, you have an obligation to help make them uh, successful in that pursuit. Worse than an unbeliever if you fail to provide for your family. Last night we were talking about this passage with our children, and I was asking them, what, what does God want you to spend your money on? And, and Ellie, our, our four-year-old, said, uh, God wants us to help Grandma and Grandpa. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Has Grandma and Grandpa been talking to you, sweetie? Are they struggling? But she's exactly right. You know, if, if, if our parents are ever in some financial difficulties, we, uh, before the church at large, have a responsibility to, to bear them up under those burdens. And the person who loves money, like the Pharisee, says, well, this money is devoted to something else, Mom and Dad. Sorry, tough luck. The believer understands that God has given them the obligation, the joyful obligation, to care for their family. Another thing that God desires us to spend our money on is uh, to sacrificially give to the local church for kingdom purposes. God wants you to sacrificially give to your local church for God's greater kingdom purposes. Now, some of what I'm about to say here might be a little bit controversial, so let me, let me set it up with, with some scripture here. In Acts chapter 4, we see kind of the biblical model for giving to kingdom work. In Acts chapter 4, we see this uh, beginning in verse 32. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and 
great grace was upon them all. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And so the biblical model of of giving uh, to ministry and kingdom work that God does is to give to a a local church. As you give to a, a local church, the local church leadership decides how best to use God's resources. And in our church, the way this is structured is people give to the church, then there's uh, accountability, then the leaders uh, are accountable to the church and how they spend those funds. And so sometimes we'll bring things to a, a congregational vote to affirm that the leadership is following God in some area, and every dollar that's spent by the church is uh, reported and recorded and, and uh, told to the church. And there's various levels of scrutiny that that undergoes in order to assure that God's money is being well spent. But I think this is a crucial point. God has established the local church for the working about of his kingdom purposes. And oftentimes, as we, as we uh, give to ministries, we're not giving to ministries that are supporting the local church. I was at a missions meeting uh, last Tuesday I was at this meeting, and we were talking about, okay, what's, what's the purpose of our missions program? And we, we said this very clearly. We want to be giving to missionaries that are establishing or coming alongside of and supporting mission work. Or, I'm sorry. We want to come alongside missionaries who are establishing and strengthening the local church. It's the local church that God has ordained that does ministry locally and throughout the world. Say, so, well, should I give to missionaries? Should I give to uh, what we call parachurch organizations? And I, I'd say, yes, we should. I would say, first of all, give to your local church. Trust your leadership. You know, if, if every person uh, gave 10% of their income, kind of a, what we call it, a tithe, and I don't believe that's a legalistic requirement, but if every person just committed that much to the local church, the need for other organizations would be, would be greatly reduced. And sometimes I believe the reason that the local church doesn't have the resources it needs is because there's a, a failure to let go of the things of this world. So if you are, and I, I would encourage you beyond giving to your local church to give to missionaries and, and parachurch organizations, but ask this question as you give to them. Is this a missionary that's establishing a local church, working to the establishment of a local church, either through the proclamation of the gospel or working with leaders, or is it a, tr- a mission agency that's coming along and, and strengthening the local church? Last thing about how God wants you to spend your money is he wants you to be a steward. He wants you to have a plan. He wants you to be careful as, I'm sorry, help those in need also is is something that God uh, tells us that we're to be doing with our money. Uh, Mark 10, as he he speaks to the rich young ruler, he's to sell all his possessions and give to the poor. And then finally, to to be a good steward, to have a plan as as you think through how to, to spend your money. The love of gold was forgotten in the anxiety and the terror of the moment, said the survivor from the SS Central America. So often, we believe that we can love God and love the things of this world. Those loves cannot coexist. 